You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of First Peter. As you're getting yourself situated in First Peter, uh, that's where we've been uh, uh, since the beginning of this ministry year. I want to begin by uh, reading a, a handful of statements, and what I want to do is I, I want to see if you can pick out uh, a common theme or thread in these statements, in these problems that I, I want to read to you. Um, the first problem is this, um, I didn't get exactly what I wanted for Christmas. It's heavy. Um, here, here's the second one, okay? Um, I'm hungry, but I already brushed my teeth. Here's the next one. My walk-in closet is not big enough. How about this one? There's nothing to drink at home except an unlimited supply of fresh drinking water. Um, I want food from the back of the fridge, but it's blocked by all the food in the front of the fridge. Here, one more. I'm so tired of eating at all the restaurants near my place. Do you see a common thread there? Some of you are really struggling here. Like there's gotta be something really deep and meaningful here. It's not, it's not really that, that difficult. Here's, here's the, the, the common issue here. These are all first world problems. They're really, when you think about it, not really problems at all. In fact, we use the term first world problems as a way of kind of making light of the problems that we face in this world, don't we? I mean, especially those of us who live in the first world. And the idea behind that kind of tongue-in-cheek phrase is very simple. You know, compared to what it could be, we've got it pretty good. And that's exactly what Peter wants to do with us this morning. He wants to remind us that compared to what it could be, we've got it pretty good. Even when we consider the legitimate problems that we face in this life, what we face is nothing compared to not only what it could be, but compared to what we already have been given. Peter wants to reorient our focus. He wants to give us a great perspective on the problems and the suffering that we face in this life, especially the suffering that we face for choosing to follow Jesus. And he wants to remind us of some very important things. In fact, he wants to remind us, listen this morning, of how good we actually have it. And it's so easy for us to forget this. And the longer you've been a Christian, perhaps the easier it is for you to forget how good you really have it, how good the gospel really is. And I wanna put this phrase on the screen behind me because you're you're gonna see it and hear it a lot. Okay, this morning, here's really the nail that I want you to walk out of here understanding. The gift of your salvation is greater than the grief of your suffering. Okay? That's what Peter wants to drive into the hearts of followers of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. Okay? The gift of your salvation is greater than the grief of your suffering. Now, that greater than symbol there, right? all of you kids in here, you know what that means, right? What were you taught in school? Right? How do you know it's greater than? Right? It looks like a little alligator right? that's eating the better thing. And I just want you to get this picture in your mind. Listen, what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we have in salvation is so, so good. It is phenomenal what we have, and that's what Peter wants to drive home. In fact, he has been trying to, if, if you didn't know this, we've actually only come to the end of the introductory paragraph in Peter's letter. And in this entire letter, Peter has had one dominant goal. It has been in one sense to address the suffering we experience for Christ, but he's had a greater goal. 
His greater goal has been to remind us of the greatness of our salvation, how incredible the gift of salvation really is. In fact, all the way back, if you just kind of track with me through where we've been, Peter, in the very first couple of verses, yes, he reminds the believers that they are elect exiles of the dispersion, but he says this to them in verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God, here's their salvation, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, he wants to put salvation front and center. He says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He went on to define that living hope, that salvation that we have as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. He said in verse nine, after he said that we haven't seen him, but yet we love him, we don't now see him, but we believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, he's been talking all about our salvation this entire way through, and now in these last couple of verses, he finishes off his introduction by inviting us to consider in a new way how incredible this hope of salvation truly is. And here's what he does. He does this by helping us look backward at those who have played a part in bringing this salvation to us and how God has masterfully arranged our salvation throughout redemptive history. And here's what he says, follow along in verse 10. He says this, concerning this salvation, that salvation we have just described, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating what he Uh, what he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. He is ratcheting up our perspective on the salvation that we have and truly how incredible the hope of salvation is. So I want to ask this question and march through this text. How incredible is the hope of our salvation? How incredible is the hope of our salvation? Here's how incredible it is. First of all, the prophets diligently sought it. He pulls us all the way back into the Old Testament and into the prophetic office. Now, the prophets had been, a prophecy, excuse me, had taken place all the way since the Garden of Eden. God had spoken to human beings. God had desired to communicate through human means, giving them divine messages. Adam, in a sense, was a prophet. Noah was a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. Abraham had received a a message from God and had communicated that effectively as well. But the institution of the prophetic office is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When prophets became an official category in the word of God, God's people, you see, at that point had reached Mount Sinai. You remember that God had delivered them out of Egypt in the great Exodus event. And initially, during that time, God had spoke to his people in the hearing of all of them. 
But the people were actually afraid of God's voice, and they asked God specifically to speak to them through the voice of Moses instead. They were terrified by the very voice of God, and so they asked that there would be a mediator, one through whom God would communicate this truth to them. God had condescended to this request that they had made, and the office of the prophet was born. You can read all about it in Deuteronomy 18, as it's described and defined there. But here's what you need to understand about the prophets of old. All of Israel's prophets, every single one of them, stood in the very presence of God in order to receive God's word, and then they spoke that word in the presence of all the people. They had the unique privilege of knowing divine truth, delivered right from God himself. They had the unique privilege of communicating that divine truth and oftentimes writing down that divine truth for us to be able to hold in our hands and read ourselves. But while the prophets had many messages that they communicated to God's people, the greatest of all was the incredible message of the hope of salvation. What the prophets knew was that salvation was absolutely necessary. They had a good handle on the the great problem of the world. They knew that sin had infiltrated the world that they lived in, the world that we live in, that sin had destroyed humanity's potential for a relationship with God, that intimate personal relationship had been utterly fractured and destroyed. The sin, the rebellion against God, had created this massive chasm, this huge problem, and humanity needed to be saved. God had begun to reveal his eternal plan of salvation to these prophets and through these prophets. God saw the destruction that sin had caused, God knew that the destruction would take place, and God had a plan, an eternal plan, a plan that he had prepared from before the foundation of the earth to save a people unto himself. When all the world was cursed by sin, God promised that he was bringing the blessing of salvation to restore what had been lost. But here's the catch. When you read back through the Old Testament, one of the things you begin to realize is that the Old Testament prophets didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. They were getting little snippets as God progressively revealed more and more information about this great plan of redemption. They saw a little bits and pieces of that puzzle along the way. And the word of God tells us here that they began to look at, to inquire, to inspect carefully what God was revealing, this great plan of salvation. What Peter is actually telling us here is that the prophet's best days were spent searching out salvation's fulfillment. They wanted to see the fulfillment of this salvation. They wanted to know how God was going to do this, how God was going to fix this great problem of sin in the world and the effects of it. The prophets belonged to a former era, one in which they did not grasp fully the things now revealed to believers. You see what Peter is doing here? Peter is trying to bring us back into the mind of the prophets. And what Peter is saying is this, listen, if you live today, if you live this side of the cross, you have more information now than the prophets of old ever had. I mean, they tried to wrap their mind uh, to understand what, what exactly we know now in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of salvation, you see, was their greatest passion. It was their greatest pursuit. They searched here, it says, they searched and inquired carefully. There were men who studied 
long and hard. They poured over God's word as he had given it to them. They poured over the the prophecies of, of the prophets who came before them. They tried to put the pieces together. They wanted to see the full picture. They longed to understand it and they longed to experience it in its fullness. And it was plain, as as Peter says here, that it was the grace that was to be ours. That's a helpful statement. They longed to understand the grace that was to be yours or ours. Listen, the prophets sought to understand God's grace and mercy. They understood that salvation had to be by grace. They saw that humanity had no possibility of saving himself or themselves. They saw that the chasm was too great, the problem was too big. Humanity could never fix this problem, but God in his grace could and would. They sought to understand as they revealed divine truth and they looked at divine scripture, they sought to understand the grace and mercy that would be found in Jesus Christ. They sought to understand his forgiveness, his goodness, his unmerited favor and blessings that are lavished on undeserving sinners. To be clear, Salvation in the Old Testament was by grace, just like it is in the New Testament. Nobody in the Old Testament was saved by any merit of their own. Nobody in all of the history of the world has ever been saved by anything other than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? But they looked forward, and by faith they believed in the promises that God had given to them there and now. They longed to understand in fullness what we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the plan that they embrace, and this is the plan that we too embrace. They looked forward, we look backward. They looked with limited knowledge and limited light, we look back with full knowledge and full light of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is when you consider the prophets, if you read through the Old Testament, one of the things you see very clearly is that the prophets did not have an easy life. The vast majority of the prophets had very difficult lives. They had been called by God, and just think of the parallels here with with Peter's audience. They had been called by God to know divine truth. They had been called by God to believe by faith in the salvation plan of God. And oftentimes, they were going and speaking divine truth to very rebellious people, right? The nation of Israel oftentimes hated the prophets of God, rejected the prophets of God, killed the prophets of God. They suffered immensely for their faith in God in the Old Testament context. And yet, listen, how did they make it through? That's what Peter's getting at. How did they get through all of this suffering, all of this difficulty with all the truth they knew? Here's how they got through. Listen, here's how they endured. They were filled with hope as they understood and clung to the promises of God. And what Peter is saying to us this morning through the Spirit of God, listen, is that we ought to be like them. In many ways, we ought to expect we will be like them. We know divine truth. We speak divine truth, and we will be called to suffer for divine truth. One of the things I love as we look at the the prophets of old as they're described here is their diligence in looking at the Word of God and seeking out divine truth. And it serves in many ways as an example to us. They sought to explore, they sought to embrace, and they sought to experience all that God had revealed in the Old Testament. And I would suggest to you that this is really giving us, in one sense, a paradigm for how we go back to the Old Testament. In light of what we know of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually have greater insight into what God was doing in his plan of redemptive history. 
See, when you go back and you read the Old Testament, here's, here's our problem. A lot of us, maybe we've been taught or maybe we've just kind of done this throughout our life. We go back and we read the Old Testament as a bunch of, of uh, uh, nice, interesting, fascinating, isolated stories. And what we miss is that they are, in, in, a, in effect, a smaller stories that are part of advancing a much larger story that is still yet to be concluded. And as you're going back through the Old Testament, one of the things you ought to be doing is saying, God, I want to understand how you are unfolding this story, how you're advancing the cause of salvation, the incredible hope of salvation that could be found only in Jesus Christ. And here's what you need to be praying. God, I want my heart to be thrilled as I see you working over thousands of years to accomplish what only you could accomplish. God is reorienting our perspective. You say, why? Why is God doing that? Because he wants us to remember this. Remember, remember, you're gonna get this, you're gonna see this phrase a lot, okay? The gift of your salvation is greater than the grief of your suffering. That's what the prophets clung to. That's what the people of God have always clung to. The gift of our salvation is greater than the grief of our suffering. Secondly, notice this. What's so incredible about our of the hope of our salvation. Secondly, this, the Spirit faithfully revealed it. The Spirit faithfully revealed it. In verse 11, it says this, that they actually began to search and inquire carefully, specifically related to this. Listen, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. God had given them all of this information about the Messiah that was going to come and, and make all things right. The one who was going to undo the, the curse of sin. And they longed, they longed to know who this would be and when this would happen. And that they wanted to be a part of seeing this all unfold. But I want you to notice here that the, the agent of revelation here is the Spirit of Christ. Did you notice that? That's what an interesting phrase. The Spirit of Christ revealed these prophecies to them. You say, why, why does it say here the Spirit of Christ and not the Holy Spirit? And are they two different spirits? How am I supposed to understand this? The phrase the Spirit of Christ is actually used in a, um, three or four times, I believe, four times in the New Testament. And it's used in a, as a way of simply describing the work of the Holy Spirit. It's no different. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit of God. But I, I think when you read this, it's intended by the Spirit of God to tell us what the work of the Spirit of God actually is predominantly doing, okay? In other words, um, the Spirit was revealing prophecies that were ultimately listened about Jesus Christ, all through the Old Testament, all, all of these, these prophecies that are coming through these prophets of old, all of them are ultimately, listen, coming from Christ, and they are all about Christ. They're pointing to Christ. It reminds us as we just even hear this, listen, that salvation is not first and foremost about us. You realize that? I mean, many of us have been accustomed to a gospel that is very man-centered. We make salvation all about us. Did you know that salvation is not all about you? It's all about Jesus Christ. He's the supreme object of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's all about what he alone could accomplish. 
And the Holy Spirit had progressively revealed through the pages of Scripture what God must do to accomplish our salvation. There was going to come an individual, a Messiah, an anointed one of God who would take care of the problem of sin. Again, the prophets here, they didn't know when or how these messianic prophecies would ultimately be fulfilled, but what is most incredible is what was revealed to and through the prophets. The Spirit of God gave them some very unique, fascinating insights into what this Messiah would actually do, how he would accomplish our salvation. And there are two things that this verse, verse 11, highlights for us. You see them there, right? The suffering and the subsequent glory of the Messiah. These are the two things that over and over again are revealed consistently by the prophets. Suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. Peter is writing, remember, to Christians who are suffering. He spent some time already reminding them of how to suffer well and to look forward to the glory that's to come. And you can just hear Peter saying through this, just listen, listen to what he's saying. Suffer now, glory later. He wants us to remember that Christ, listen, Christ, the promised Messiah who is exalted with a crown of glory is the Christ who first endured the crown of thorns. The Christ of glory is the Christ of the cross. You can't have one without the other. And there is a powerful order here that he is drawing our attention to. The sequence, in other words, of our lives follows the sequence of the life of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? He suffered first and he entered into his glory. So must we. Jesus understood this order well. He grasped what the scriptures taught. He grasped the will of the Father. And it was the pattern predicted for him in all of the Old Testament scriptures. But this was something that was so challenging and difficult for the early disciples to grasp. I think it was challenging for all of the people of God to grasp throughout all of the centuries. They they wanted the glory without the suffering. Who doesn't, right? Now, one of us likes suffering and then glory. If you can just give me all the glory up front, forget about the suffering, I'd be a happy guy. But that's actually not true. Do you realize that? Do you realize that that's actually not true in your own life? Do you realize that you can appreciate glory so much more when you understand and have experienced suffering? I mean, I mean, some of you in here, you know this personally. Have you ever experienced just suffering or tragedy in a certain area of your life? Maybe it's been relationally. Maybe it's been financially. Maybe it's been physically. Isn't there a sense when you have suffered in a particular area, it helps you appreciate that area so much more in your life? Like if you've suffered physically, you know how grateful you ought to be when you experience any semblance of health in your life. Isn't that true? He's saying, don't you understand? It's that the suffering is actually going to help you appreciate the glory that much more. And it's no different than what our Savior had to go through. Peter was actually confused by this idea of suffering before glory too. Do you remember that in the Gospels? Jesus is trying to tell Peter repeatedly, Peter, uh, I have to suffer and die before my kingdom is going to come. And Peter's like, no, Lord, let me tell you how it should be. On the very day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you remember the story in Luke chapter 24? There are two disciples 
two who had followed Jesus, two who believed he was the promised Messiah, but there are two men as they walk to this place called Emmaus, two men who are saddened by what they've just experienced in the death of Jesus Christ. They, they have witnessed, they have seen, all of Jerusalem has heard, it says, about the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, he was supposed to be the Messiah. That's why they're so sad. Jesus, in his resurrected state, comes up alongside these two men. He kind of sneaks up incognito. He blinds them spiritually from seeing who he really is. And he begins to have this conversation with these two men. And he begins to start to, to talk to them about why they're so sad. And they're like, hey, are you, the, are you new around here? Like, did you not see what just happened? And he proceeds to take them back. The word of God says he took them back through the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, and he began to march them through the word of God as they walked on this path to this city. He's marching them through the Old Testament and he's showing them, listen, where it says explicitly that the Messiah must suffer and die. This is the part they couldn't grasp. He taught them from the whole Old Testament that the, the Messiah must first suffer before he enters into his glory. And you say, well, what? Like, how did he do that? Like, that would have been an amazing conversation to be part of, amen? I mean, that would have been so fun. Imagine Jesus instructing you through the Old Testament. Like, the great teacher, the one who inspired the scriptures himself is walking through and showing you, see, this is where I am. This is where I am. And listen, we don't have time. Like, I, I'm not sure how long it took them to get to Emmaus. Um, I'm sure Jesus could slow down time if he wanted. Uh, we're not going to go through all the scriptures because I'm not sure I, I can present even that to you as faithfully as is necessary, but I want to show you some scriptures that so clearly point to the suffering of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so you're just going to have to, you know, if you're taking notes, just forget about it for a second, okay? Seriously, forget about it. If you want these passages, you want these passages later, you can, you can just quickly jot them down or come see me later. But here's, I just want to just, I want you to get just a sense of how the Old Testament points to this beautiful reality. And I, I want to just show you these. Right now, we'll just start marching through. Um, the first one there is Genesis 3.15. Like right at the very beginning of the Bible, listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there, listen, suffering, in the very first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ, suffering is stated right there. He has to have his heel bruised. He will be bitten by the serpent. He will suffer. Look at this, Psalm 22, verse one, a great messianic psalm to the choir master, according to the doe of dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Remember Jesus hanging on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the statement of suffering. Psalm 22, verse seven and eight says this, all who seek me, see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads at me, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm 22, verse 18 says this, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of these pictures of suffering. Psalm 34, 19 and 20 says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, speaking of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of all them all. He he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Isaiah 50 verse six says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And one that I know you're familiar with in Isaiah 53, 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Make no mistake about it. Listen, the Old Testament from the very beginning all the way to the very beginning of the New Testament prophesies that the Messiah would suffer. He would suffer physically at the hands of sinful men. He would be put to death and he would be done so in a very specific way. But more than that, the Old Testament promises and prophesies that this one would deal not just with the physical reality of death, but the spiritual reality of death. He would suffer the agony, yes, physically, of the physical torture of death, but he would suffer the agony of the very wrath of God. God's wrath against sin, the just punishment for sin, had to be poured out upon him. By his wounds we are healed. He had to be stricken. He had to be dealt the death blow. He had to be put in the grave. promised from the very beginning, prophesied from of old. But what's so fascinating is it wasn't just, listen, it wasn't just the suffering of the Messiah that was prophesied and promised of old, but the subsequent glories, meaning the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This too was promised. He would suffer, he would see the grave, but he would overcome the grave. This was the hope of the Old Testament and it is the hope of the New Testament. Listen to what the word of God says in Psalm 2 verses Seven and eight, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is speaking, listen, of the resurrection. Ask of me and I will give the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here's the glory. Psalm 16, says this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. A text that's directly applied to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Psalm 110.1 says this, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Isaiah 9.6 says this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 says this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and even ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know what Full on renovation of the entire earth. The entire universe will be fixed by the Messiah. Glory to come. Isaiah 60 verse one says this, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14 says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the subsequent glory that was promised in the Old Testament. And by the way, listen, church, we are scratching the surface. There's just, just this little tiny scratch of the surface of all that the Old Testament reveals. I mean, this is to say nothing of all of the patterns that are revealed through the Old Testament, of the sacrificial system, of the Passover lamb, of all the themes of the Bible that, that are leading towards Christ. All of the, the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen? Like, this is what the scriptures teach over and over and over again. And in Luke 24, can you just imagine as Jesus is unfolding all of these and so much more, I mean, in, in such beauty and majesty, here's what they say. Jesus disappears and all of a sudden the lights go on and, and they realize that Jesus, they realize it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was speaking to them and then they say this, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? Do you see what happens when you understand what God is doing in, in Revelation? When you see what is God, God is doing in, in redemption history? Like God is igniting the hearts of his people with a fire and a passion for his name. To know the truth, to know the God of all truth, to know the incredible hope of salvation, it should light a fire within us. This is so critical. Critical for us to understand Because the pattern seen in the life of Christ is in fact a pattern of our lives. Our suffering, this is so, listen, listen. Our suffering is not a sign that Christ has betrayed us. Our suffering is not a sign that he is no longer concerned about us or that he has somehow abdicated his throne. Our suffering is a sign of our fellowship with the resurrected Lord who first suffered for us. You see, Peter's drawing attention to, to this profound reality that suffering in some respects becomes a sign of the glory that is to follow in our own lives when we enter in the presence of Christ in heaven. Remember why he's doing this, church, remember. Why does he keep putting this forward, why? Because the gift of your salvation is greater than the grief of your suffering. Listen, how did Jesus make it through? How did Jesus endure for the joy set before him? I mean, he looked at the end. He saw the glory that was to come, and he endured the cross, despising the shame. He suffered through it all, and he knew that not only was he going to enter into his glory, but that he, listen, would bring many sons to glory. And can I just tell you, as you consider just the suffering that you may experience um, right now in this world, can I just remind you that it is better to suffer now for Jesus than it is to suffer later without Jesus. Let me say that again. It is better to suffer now for Jesus. Suffer whatever you have to suffer. Loss of reputation, loss of finances, loss of job, uh, whatever trial you may face for following Jesus. That suffering is nothing compared to the suffering you will experience without having Jesus. Do you know that? an eternal suffering, where you will pay for your sin. And it was from the risen Lord himself that the apostles learned how Christ and his suffering and glory fulfilled the scriptures. 
And it was the spirit of Christ that faithfully revealed it. I mean, how incredible is the hope of our salvation? It's so incredible. The spirit of God faithfully revealed it. But not only that, listen to this. It's so incredible that the angels eagerly examine it. Did you notice there that that it's not just the prophets of old, it's not just us here and now, but the angels in heaven, supernatural beings, are in awe of what we get to experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it seems like, you know how he just adds it in there? You know, things into which angels long to look. It's almost like a little throwaway statement, but I just, can you just consider just for a moment what he's saying? Angels, angels are amazed at what we get to experience. It's fascinating what Peter does here. You know, the, the very angels of heaven are peering, in a sense, into the mysteries of salvation that are revealed by the Spirit of God to those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ. The word Peter uses here describes an action of straining to see, a deep longing and desire. The word there, they, they long to look The same word is used of the disciples who when they got to the tomb of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday and they they went to stoop down, that's the idea, they stooped down to peer in and see the empty tomb. I mean, they got there as fast as they could and they wanted to understand what was taking place. That's the exact same idea here with the angels. I mean, the angels are sitting in the bleachers in heaven and they are stooping down. They are peering down in utter amazement and awe at what God is accomplishing in salvation. Paul says that the apostles were set forth as a spectacle to angels as well as to humans. You know, what's what's really interesting is that we have a lot of questions about, you know, angels, right? Like, it's kind of an interesting topic. It's it's, it's fascinating in one sense, but do you realize that angels are fascinated with you and us, you and me? More than that, they're fascinated with what God is doing with you and us, you and me. The angels are, are staggered by what they see. They, they wonder, you say, why? Why are, they, why are they just so intrigued by what God is doing with us? Listen, they wonder what it's like to experience the grace and glory of salvation and God's forgiveness from sin. You ever think about that? They have a holy curiosity to understand the kind of grace that they will never experience. The holy angels don't need to be saved, Right? But there is a category of angels that we call demons, fallen angels who rebelled against God and they will never be saved. They cannot be saved. And so the angels, the angelic beings, they they know this. They know that they either chose to stay with God or they chose to rebel against God and there was no hope for them after they had made that, like that was it. If you chose to rebel, that's it. They look at humanity and they they say humanity rebel against God in such a profound way, right? And now God says, I love this this part of my creation so much, I will actually become one of them. I will take on flesh, I will walk on the sin-cursed earth, and even though they hate me and rebel against me, I am going to suffer and die for them. They can't even fathom it. I looked online for an emoji of an angel with a mind blown, but I couldn't find one. And what's so interesting is that the the angels have actually been involved in the salvation process all along, right? 
Do you, you know that? From the Old Testament, when the angels show up, they deliver divine message. One of the roles of uh, angel means messenger, actually. Some of these angels, some of these, these angelic beings, they delivered messages all throughout the scriptures. They are being used by God, playing an active role in delivering the hope of salvation and helping people see that God loves them. God has not forgotten about them. God is going to redeem them, right? Not, not only in the Old Testament, but they were actually involved in the unfolding of this great salvation in the, in the New Testament. They were there at the announcement of Christ's birth. Remember the choir of angels? They sang in the sky. Angels were used to communicate to both Mary and Joseph. Angels ministered to Jesus in his time of testing in the wilderness. Angels stood by the grave when he rose from the dead. They stood by his disciples and by Jesus Christ when he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And they continue to serve him now in worship and adoration and serve us by ministering to believers. They witness the greatest miracle of all time and they rejoice and praise God. Listen, the word of God says they rejoice and praise God that whenever one sinner repents, they're up in heaven, and the moment, the moment, listen, one of us is met by the grace of God and places our faith in the Lord, the moment somebody says, I, I see it, I'm a sinner, I need the gospel, I need God to save me, I can't save myself, I humbly bow down and I, I embrace what Jesus did, Jesus, you, you save me, I will follow you all the days. The moment somebody does that, place their faith in Jesus, is met by the, the supernatural power of the Spirit of God, the angels in heaven begin to rejoice. They're looking down and going, this is unbelievable. God is saving a people who don't deserve to be saved. God is saving a people who rebel against him. God is saving a people who hate him. God, you shouldn't do this. This is crazy. But they celebrate it. They rejoice. And listen, let me ask you this. Do we do the same? Not just every time somebody is saved. Do we spend time in our own personal lives rejoicing at the salvation that has been given to us? I mean, every day, do you realize every day you ought to look in the mirror and say, God saved a wretch like me. Hallelujah. Nothing better, okay? You say, why? Why does he keep reminding us of this? Here's why. Listen, listen. You know what I'm going to say, right? Put it on the screen. That's why. Because the gift of your salvation is greater than the grief of your suffering. It doesn't matter what you're facing, okay? I'm not, not to minimize your suffering, but listen, when you compare it with how awesome your salvation is, it pales in comparison. It's nothing compared to what you've been given in your salvation, Every time you're going through a hard time, okay, just remember, when you followed Christ, when God saved you, the angels in heaven threw a party. And you ought to be celebrating now. It's staggering. They praise God for what they see. We praise God for what we've experienced. We get to experience the gift of salvation and Finally, how incredible is the hope of our salvation? Here it is. Listen, the disciples powerfully proclaim it. The disciples powerfully proclaim this. And here in verse 12, listen to what it says. It says, it was revealed to them. This is the prophets of old. How fascinating is this? It was revealed to them all the way back then. They're searching, they're inquiring, they're trying to figure out the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. Who's this gonna be? When's it gonna happen? Here's what was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves but you. Their prophecies, they had value in their time and place, 
but their greatest value was yet to be seen and known. God let them know that what they wrote, what they said, what they recorded, listen, was for you. So that you could look back and see that God from the beginning of time had a plan to save you. So that you could look back across history and realize that right now you live, listen, you live in one of the most privileged times in all of the universe, in all of human history. Do you realize that? You live. You live what they longed to see and know. You lived what they couldn't process or fathom. They, They desperately wanted to see it. And they knew that one day a generation was coming who was going to get to see all of this unfold in real time. They knew that there was going to be a generation who was able to understand the fullness of God's plan of redemption in a way that they never could. And he says... There that in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Again, just notice this. Just notice how the Holy Spirit is actively engaged here. The same Spirit of Christ sent from his ascended glory now fills the disciples who preach the prophecies of old that have come true. This idea of the Spirit that's come from heaven, this is more than likely a reference to Pentecost. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's drawing out kind of the, the storyboard and he's, he's reminding them of the prophets of old and the spirit of God. And then he's reminding them that don't you understand that there was a moment in time when the spirit of God was poured out from heaven, flaming tongues of fire came down and rested upon the apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ. And they began to declare with boldness the good news of the gospel. And all they did, listen, all they did, you read it through the book of Acts, all they did was go back to the Old Testament. They kept going back. Do you see? Do you see? It's here. He's here. He's here. He's here. He did, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. The fulfillment of all these prophecies has come true in Jesus Christ. The wait is over. This is why Peter in his first sermon on Acts, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, he said, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What Peter is referencing there and what he's eager to point out is that his hearers are the heirs of the full message of the prophets. The least disciple of Jesus Christ is in a better position to understand Old Testament revelation than the greatest prophet of old. This is a unique privilege that we enjoy, but I don't want you to miss this. Don't miss this connection, okay? They were empowered for this mission to preach the good news by the Spirit of God sent from heaven. And catch this, do you hear what Peter just said to us? And so are we. The disciples were filled with the Spirit. And they endured suffering on this earth. You realize that? Again, just remember remember who Peter's writing to. People who are suffering for following Jesus. Here's the disciples. They're filled with the Spirit of God. They begin to boldly proclaim the gospel. The gospel begins to advance across the globe. But as the gospel is moving forward, we know this. We know this from the book of Acts. We know this from the letters in the New Testament. And we know this from church history in general. The disciples suffered on this earth just like the prophets of old. The church suffered just like the prophets of old and the people of God of old. The disciples of Jesus Christ, 
They too were considered exiles and strangers and aliens. They were mocked and beaten just like their Savior. They were rejected and killed just like their Savior. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that the apostles were in disrepute. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were poorly dressed. They were buffeted and homeless. They were reviled and persecuted and slandered. They were the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. This is what Paul said. And then he could urge them after saying this. Listen, this is what some of us forget. This is the context in which now Paul says this. Then Paul says all of this. He says, this is who we are to the world. And then he says this. He urges them to imitate him. Be like me. Because I'm simply trying to be like my Savior. Stephen would be the first martyr of the church, stoned in Acts chapter 7. Peter, the author of this book, according to church history, was crucified upside down, refusing, refusing to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every apostle, um, perhaps other than John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos at the end of his life, every other apostle was put to death because they chose to follow Jesus Christ. And by the way, they weren't surprised by this. They had learned this from Jesus, not only by his example, but by his teaching. Jesus, remember, was the one who told them to pick up their cross daily and follow him. See, how did they endure? How did they endure all of the disrepute, all of this uh, chaos and suffering in this world? Here's how. Because they understood the gift of their salvation was greater than the grief of their suffering. You see, church, this is what we're called to. This is what we're called to understand and embrace. And Peter, interestingly, listen, do you realize Peter has just been giving us a theology of salvation, these, these first handful of verses in this first chapter. Peter is preparing us through this theology to powerfully proclaim our faith and to live our faith out in the midst of a hostile world. And he concludes his introduction by reminding us that this is only possible if we grasp the incredible hope of our salvation. That's what he's doing. It's like, look, you're never, you're never gonna face the adversity for following Jesus if you don't first understand and grasp this reality. The hope of your salvation is utterly astounding. It's absolutely incredible. One Lord through the ages, one great plan of salvation, one revealed message, one Holy Spirit who worked through the prophets of old, the apostles of Peter's day, and now is at work in and through to the disciples of Jesus Christ, you and me. The same Holy Spirit that was empowering them is empowering us to proclaim the incredible hope of salvation, even, especially, especially as we suffer for doing so. And it is this incredible hope of salvation that we celebrate this morning, even as we come to the Lord's Supper. And before the ushers come forward, just, I just want to take a moment to ask this simple question. For some of you who are here and are not followers of Jesus Christ, I just want you to know what the scriptures are calling you to. They're calling you to the suffering servant. The scriptures are calling you to see that God has had a plan of salvation that he has laid out from the beginning of, of creation until this very moment, and it will come to its final consummation at a latter date. But listen, God is saying this. I have begun this story of salvation. I have planned it from of old. I would come and pay the price for sin. I would suffer and die for you. I would rise victorious from the grave and the God of the scriptures is coming to you in this moment by the power of his spirit and the power of his word, and he's saying to you, have you bowed the knee to me and chosen to follow me as your Lord and master? 
God invites you, listen, into a life where you will suffer. He calls you to count the costs for following him, but he invites you into a life that will come with a subsequent glory, a glory that is unmatched by any of the suffering of this earth. The God of this universe wants you to be able to say um, with confidence this morning that the gift of your salvation is greater by far, listen, than the grief of any suffering you might endure because of him.